My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, so glad to have you guys join us. I want to just mention two things. One is just some information, and uh, I want to ask you guys to pray. number of months ago, I shared that we were going to pursue the purchase of the property to the west of us, right over here, and that we were going to submit an offer. And a lot of people have asked me about what's happened with that. And, um, and so this is the update. We have not been able to, to come to an agreed-upon price that both parties are happy with. And so we are going to continue that conversation, but also start um, looking at some other options. And so I would very much appreciate your prayers. Um, I don't know uh, exactly what the future looks like. I know that we do need to get some land, and it's going to be time to, to, to do something here. Uh, within the next few years, and we want to make those plans, but I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, and I would just ask you to pray for discernment and wisdom and for God to open up some doors, because God will. I'm confident there are some great plans that God has in store for this place, and um, let's just pray and ask God to reveal that. Uh, the, the other thing I'd like to say is next week is Easter Sunday, and there are going to be a lot, a lot of people here. Um, there are going to be also a lot of new people here. And I hope that you guys invite some of them yourself. I hope they come on your elbow. But I also want to ask you, um, would you would you be especially mindful to be welcoming next week? Um, you, you know, one of the things that people have said that they've appreciated so much about this community is the, the willingness of folks to, to say hi when they were brand new, to remember how awkward it is and unusual to walk into the church the first time and how big a difference it makes for someone to say hi my name's David. Hey, I haven't met you yet. If you're a partner and I taught you the 510 link rule, this is the time to do it, okay, next week. And, uh, and it just makes such a difference. And I just, as we continue to grow, I don't want us to lose that part of who we are. I want us to continue to be welcoming and have an eye for that person we haven't met so people could know how there is space for them there, for, for there's a place for them here at, in this community and how we want them to, to know us and have a relationship with Jesus. And so I'd ask you to do that. Okay, I'm really excited about today's message. Um, I hope that uh, a lot comes together for you this morning, not just in understanding uh, our faith that we have in Jesus Christ and what it means to be forgiven of our sins, but how that fits in to the grander arc of redemption that begins in this Old Testament book of Exodus that we have... Um, that, that we've been studying these last few weeks. I, I, I really want you guys to, to see some things that I think will make your, your faith become richer and deeper and fuller and something you cherish more. And the core content of what I'm going to pass on to you today, uh, that's what it did for me. When my uh, Old Testament professor, Dr. Sandra Richter, shared the, this, the core of this information, it opened my eyes and gave me such a bigger uh, view of what God had done for us through Jesus Christ, and I, I hope the same thing happens for you today. Uh, if you brought a Bible, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, if you didn't, that's fine. There is a Bible in the chair, one of the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to grab it. Uh, go to Matthew 26. We are going to read uh, a, a verses 17 through 20, 26 through 29. There on the board um, before, I think it's page 808 in the Bible in, in the chair. Um, Let's go ahead and pray before we get into it. If you'd bow your heads with me. Lord, we are so thankful for this chance to gather, this chance to shout Hosanna uh, with a bunch of kids and to just say how grateful we are for who you are in this world, that we would make space for you to ride 
into, into our lives and continue to do the work that only you can do as Savior and the one that, that gives us salvation. And, and I, just, I just pray as we open up your word and see those things in a, in a way that probably maybe we haven't seen before, Lord, that you would just give us bigger eyes for, for how incredible uh, what you have done through Jesus is. And we pray that in, in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 26, 17 through 20, 26 through 29. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Matthew 26, we are at the beginning of the final events of Jesus' life. This is the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, the Last Supper, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, all happen this week, which uh, this event actually is just after Palm Sunday. And, and so for three years now, Jesus has had a public ministry. He has been teaching. He has been healing. He has been revealing the kingdom of God in and around Israel. And now everything culminates in this final week uh, that, that we are stepping into in Matthew 26. And the timing of this is all important because while the events that, 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 we, that I just mentioned become the Christian Holy Week, it, in first century Israel, when all these things happened for the first time, this wasn't just any week in ancient Israel either. This was a very significant week. In our scripture, Matthew said, uh, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. What was the festival of unleavened bread? It doesn't exactly sound like a rip-roaring party, unless you're maybe Martha Stewart, a festival about bread that doesn't rise, yay. But the name is really misleading, uh, because this was a massive event in Jerusalem, probably the biggest week of the entire year. In terms of size and length, it'd be kind of like uh, our 4th of July day celebration, and all of the Christmas holidays rolled into one thing. It was that big. There were so many people in Jerusalem. There were so many things happening. And this is why on Palm Sunday, what we remember today with the waving of palms, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, there were all these people there ready to greet him. It was because this was happening during the festival of unleavened bread. So what did the festival celebrate? Um, remember this book that we've read for the past six, seven weeks here on Sunday morning, the book of Exodus? 
That's what the festival of unleavened bread was about. Um, This was the week when the Israelites remembered how they were freed from their slavery and their death in Egypt. This week, they remembered their independence. It really was kind of like the 4th of July. They remembered when God set them free, and, and they celebrated it with everything they had. And so our Christian Holy Week, note this, happens during, the first Holy Week happened during the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. Right? That's not a coincidence. There's something very important going on here. And you might have noticed over the past few weeks this little tagline that we've put on the series Exodus from Egypt to Easter. Well, today I hope that this connection between Egypt and Easter becomes exceedingly clear for you because that's the jump that we're going to make, okay? The biggest event of the, of the Festival of Unleavened Bread was called the Passover meal. And this is what the disciples are asking Jesus about in the other half of that first verse in the passage we read. Matthew 26, 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover supper? Right, so they're asking, where, where, where are we going to do this, this giant meal, this really important thing that we do during this festival? And, and, and that Passover... What was it, right? Well, we have worked, if you followed with us over the weeks, we have worked through nine of the ten plagues. We have studied nine of those plagues. The Passover identifies the tenth. And while all of the preceding nine plagues that we have studied were really important, and they were important in the fact that they showed that the I am of God was greater than the I am of Pharaoh. They were important in the fact that in each of those plagues, God is showing that he's greater than every single one of these Egyptian gods represented by those plagues. And, and, and while each one was important, that they all nine were directed at trying to persuade Pharaoh to release the Israelites, it wasn't until the tenth, the tenth plague that it actually happened. The 10th plague, the Passover, was the final decisive act of God that finally set God's people free. And so this is why they celebrated it. What what happened during the Passover? If if you have time, I would encourage you, go back and read Exodus chapters 11 through 13, where where it explains all this, where it tells this story. It'll help, especially after what I talked to you about this morning. But um, the 10th plague that it talks about there was was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. On on the Israelites' final night in Egypt, God sent a plague of death throughout the entire land, and in every home the firstborn child died. After God's urging over and over and over and over and over again, and Pharaoh saying, no, I will not release your people, I will not release them, over and over and over again, and hardening his heart and digging in his heels, God sends this one final plague of death, and it is the act that, that, that sets God's people free. God trades the hand of patience and grace, finally, for the hand of judgment and justice. Pharaoh had been killing the firstborn sons of Israel for decades, and now God was going to send the same plague on Egypt to set God's people free. And so the night before that plague in Egypt, 
God gave the Israelites a number of instructions. They're laid out in chapters 11 through 13 in Exodus. But what he told them to do was to be ready. First thing was to be ready in a moment's notice. This is going to happen really, really fast. And if you read it, what came to my mind was, um, you know how in the Underground Railroad, if you studied this in school, that like when the slaves would move from home to home, uh, there was these tight little windows, right, where, where people wouldn't be moving through and they knew that a route would be clear and that, that the moment that window became clear, they had to get up out of one house, move to another as fast as they can or else they'd miss their opportunity. Well, this is, this is the idea. This is part of what's happening uh, that God wants them to know when this plague comes, Pharaoh is going to come and say, get out, leave now, and you guys need to be ready. And so in this Passover meal that you're going to eat, contrary to customs, actually it was way contrary to customs, you were supposed to wear your shoes while you eat the meal. You were supposed to tuck in your cloak to your belt. You are, are not going to have time to make bread, so make it without yeast, hence the festival of unleavened bread. This is what they remembered, the bread that they ate on the very last day that they were in Egypt. Have your bags packed. It's going to be time to go. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God says, during this Passover meal, I want you to take a one-year-old lamb that is perfect. It's spotless. There's nothing wrong with it. And, and I want you to kill and eat that lamb in a particular way. And he lays that out. That it's supposed to be roasted, bitter herbs, certain things that are eaten with it. And then uh, they were supposed to take the blood from that lamb and go out to the outside of their houses. And on the two, the two doorposts and the lentil on the top, they were supposed to paint the blood of the lamb. Right? So, so they took the blood, took a brush or something, and painted blood on the top and the two sides. Actually, the scripture, it says the top and the two sides. And people say that that action is similar to the, to the cross, the sign of the cross, which, which is really interesting. But when they did that, and the plague of death came throughout Egypt, uh, it would pass over the homes that had the blood on the doorposts, that were covered by the blood of the lamb. Hence, the name Passover, because that plague of death passed over the home of the Israelites and they were set free. You know, the last thing that's really interesting about those passages is that in the middle of the instructions about how they're supposed to eat this meal and how they're supposed to be ready, God also tells them that this is a night that they're supposed to remember forever, right? So um, math, uh, Exodus 12, 17, God says, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And so for 1,400 years now, the Israelites every year had set aside and, and celebrated the festival of unleavened bread. They remember the Passover night because this was the night of their emancipation. This is when they became free. And when we step into Matthew 26 with the story of Jesus, we are at the beginning of this week that remembers the Exodus and we're setting up the Passover meal when the blood of the lamb saves God's people. That's really uh, an incredible thing, right? So, so we, got, we understand our, our place. We know where we are. Um, you know how uh, traditions tend to develop over time, right? So, so think about how we celebrate Christmas now, right? There are a lot of things that go into the celebration of Christmas. Uh, and it depends how much you do, how your family likes to do it. But there are gifts under the tree, there are gifts that are stockings, 
There are ornaments, there are candles, there are um, lights on your house, there are parties to go to, there's an elf on the shelf, there are a billion and a half things that happen for Christmas. Um, and I'm always trying to limit them in my house. But what, what is interesting is if you take a historical view of Christmas, you drop back a century, you know that a lot of that stuff didn't happen. A lot of these things have been introduced in recent years. And so what that does is one example of how things that we do in our culture kind of tend to, to grow and expand over time. And the reason I bring that up is because after 400, 1,400 years of celebrating the Passover, like what happened with the Israelite celebration of the meal is that it expanded and developed over time. God gave them some very specific instructions. If you read Exodus 12, you will see that. But there was a whole ritual tradition that the Israelites began to do and follow that was fully present in the time of the Passover. And we don't recognize is there when we step in and start reading this text in Matthew 26, right? And, uh, and today, all those traditions and those rituals are contained in a book called the Haggadah. I don't know if I said that right, if it's the Haggadah, Haggadah, potato, potato. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but uh, this is an example of two of them. On the left is uh, a book that may look like something, your old, your grandma's Bible um, that, that sits on a shelf and nobody ever touches, and I'm sure that's the role it plays in some Jewish homes. On the right side, I thought this was hilarious. This is a gift from Maxwell House Coffee. <laughs> So if you need to drink some coffee and celebrate the Passover, here's a gada, right? Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but both of them, these books contain the instructions on how you're supposed to celebrate the Passover. And, uh, and actually later this week, Jews all over the world... Uh, will take a Haggadah and remember what God did in freeing them and celebrate a Passover meal and follow the things that Maxwell House Coffee tells them to do, right? Uh, but, but the point I, I really am trying to make here is that this wasn't just the disciples sitting down for a meal at a holiday. Oh, let's go to Grandma's house. We'll all get there. When we get there, we'll eat whatever's out, and then we're going to sit down and watch football. Like, not at all. When they ask Jesus, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? There is so much in that statement that's got to go into the preparations. And when they get there, this is a highly symbolic, ritualized meal. And every single part of it is packed with meaning. And this, when we begin to understand it, is where uh, seeing the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples really opens our eyes to what God did through Jesus in the New Testament. Passover meal centered around four cups. Each of those cups brings out a part of what are called the I will passage, uh, passage in Exodus chapter 6. It's this, cha it's this passage. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. In each of those I will statements, there is a promise. And the Passover meal became structured around four promises. They put the last two I wills together into one, and it's four cups that would be benchmarks throughout the meal of the Passover. And so the first cup is called the Kaddush, and this was the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out. 
And, uh, and we only read in, in the passage from Matthew 26 about Jesus and the disciples drinking one cup. That, that's because they assume that we know that there's four cups, and they don't mention this cup. The way that this meal would have begun, actually, after Jesus sat down with the disciples, is that Jesus, who would have been the presider over the Passover meal, would have lifted up this first cup of sanctification, and he would have said these very words, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And they all would have said, Amen. And they would have drunk the cup, and with that, the meal would have begun. Passover would have commenced. And they would have done a couple things and then gotten to the second cup of Passover, which was called the cup of deliverance. God will deliver us from our slavery in Egypt. They'd remember that part of the story. And during this time, they would eat a number of foods, uh, really symbolic foods, like uh, they would eat bitter herbs to remind them of their bitter time in Egypt, and they would dip them in salt water, which was a representation of the tears that they shed in Egypt. And these are examples of plates that today people would use if they were going to celebrate the Passover, probably had something similar then. Uh, it's interesting to me, they have like compartments in them, kind of like if you're feeding your kids, you know, and you want to keep the green beans away from the chicken nuggets, because if they get together, your kid will have a fit, right? Uh, it's actually a similar concept. These are very ornate. They kind of look like the place where you put deviled eggs on the left, but every single one of those holes uh, those little compartments had a specific food that went in it, and, and they all told a part of the story of the Exodus for the Israelites, and, um, and they were symbolic, and they had meaning, uh, and, and they would have eaten them during this time. Then they would have moved to the period of time of the third cup, the cup of redemption, I will redeem you, and this was when they remembered the acts of God the, the judgments of God that freed them from their slavery. And during this cup, what they would do is they'd recite, they'd read the entire story of the Exodus. So all of those chapters, uh, through the Passover, through the crossing of the Red Sea, they would sit down and read it together. And uh, interesting thing that they would do when they got to the ten plagues is they would take a, instead of drinking from the cup immediately this time, they would take a drip from the cup and they'd throw it down or drop it onto the plate in front of them. People will still do this today. They, they will say, we remember the blood and the hail and the locusts and the cattle disease and darkness and, and so on. And uh, when they get to the lamb, I, I think in most seders, this is when the meal is eaten. And it's more than just like celery or bitter herbs and salt water. Jesus and the disciples at this point would have eaten a, a roasted lamb with like vegetables. If you are ever so honored as to go to a Passover meal, which is oftentimes called the Seder today, this is when you get to eat all those fantastic Jewish foods that you've heard about on Seinfeld and you've never tasted, right? If you haven't gotten to go, like, uh, like matzo ball soup and gefilte fish. Like these are things that would be eaten during this time. And then at some point uh, towards the end of that meal, the kids would get done, and it's been like two hours, so they're antsy, and you send them off to go get uh, a piece of unleavened bread that's been hidden in another room. And this is where it starts to get really fascinating, okay? Uh, there is, it, 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 at some point earlier, there's this bag called the matzah tosh. Matzah is the word for, for, uh, for bread. The unleavened bread of Passover, tosh, is the word for bag, so it's called the matzah tosh. And if you can see it there, there are three kind of compartments inside 
of that bag. So there's three compartments, one bag, uh, one bag, three compartments. Um, maybe you're catching something here, but they would fill each of those three compartments with bread. And, and what they would do during this part of sermon, cere- uh, the, the Seder ceremony is they'll pull out the second compartment of bread and they will break it and they will wrap it in linen and they'll go hide it in the room for the kids to find later. Okay? So, uh, so <laughs> is anybody catching anything going on that's really interesting there? If you sit down and you ask a rabbi, well, why don't you take the second piece of bread and leave the first and the third I have not asked this, but I know that there's a group called Jews for Jesus that does. And the guy says, rabbis will tell you, uh, we don't really know. Um, we know that this matzah is about unity. Maybe it's about the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe it's about the unity of the priesthood, you know, uh, God, the Levites, and the people. Um, but we're not exactly sure. <laughs> and so they take out this bread, the second piece of bread, and the three-in-one, and they break it. And they wrap it in linen, and they put it away for a time in a thing called the afikomen, which means to come later, like to to appear later, the thing that is to come. And these kids will bring it back to to the one presiding over the Passover at the end of the meal. And, And he will take this broken bread, and he will break off piece by piece by piece, and he will give it to everyone. He'll take the bread, he'll bless it, he'll give thanks, and he'll break it into pieces and give it to everyone that's sitting at the meal. Does that remind you of anything? Does that, does that, I see some heads nodding. This is exactly what we do in communion. This is what Jesus did in this passage. When we read uh, in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and asked God's blessing on it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to disciples saying, take it and eat it. For this is my body, right? He was taking this piece of bread and and he was starting to change the meaning of it. This wasn't just any bread now. This was my body, he said, broken for you, right? And so what's really interesting is immediately after this bread is broken is when the third cup is drunk in the the Passover tradition. So so, um, after the meal was over, Jesus would then take a cup, and he would bless it, and he would lift it up. Does that sound familiar to anybody, right? So here's the first thing I want to point out. Like, in Matthew 26, when we read about the Last Supper, we can locate ourselves in the Passover tradition because we know that the last piece of food that's eaten is this, is this unleavened bread that's broken and given to people. And then immediately following, they lift up the cup. It says, after the meal was over in some of the texts, we know where Jesus was, and now we can begin to see what Jesus is doing, because what does the third cup represent? It's the cup of redemption. It's the redemption that the Israelites experienced through the Passover, because the blood of the lamb was painted on the door frames of their homes, Right? And so what does Jesus do when he lifts up that cup? He doesn't say, this is the cup of redemption of the blood of that lamb from the Exodus. This is what he says. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which seals the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out to forgive the sins of many. Do you see what Jesus is doing in the Last Supper as it interacts with the remembrance of the covenant? 
He's, he's saying in the clearest way he knows possible. God is doing something as big as the Exodus right here and right now, and he's doing it in my blood. He is transforming the Passover of the Israelite to the communion of the Christian. He's saying God freed you from your slavery uh, of, of your death when you lived in Egypt, and now God is going to, f- to free you from your slavery to sin and death that we all have in all of our lives through the forgiveness of your sins, through the blood of a brand new lamb, which is me, right? This is happening right here and right now. And you better believe that the disciples who are already wondering what Jesus is doing at this point, (laughs) eyes are wide open, standing in awe of what this man has just said. They, They know that something is up. At the beginning of the meal, Jesus says, I have greatly, I have desired with great desire to eat this meal with you. And now he is telling them why, right? And, and you know, um, there are so many things that I would like to continue to lay out. We do not have time this morning. There's a fourth cup. I don't have time to get into any of it where they sing psalms together. And that's what happens in the text before they go out to the Mount of Olives. It says they sang and they left for the Mount of Olives. They would have sung some psalms together. That's what they do. There's more meaning. It actually ties into Palm Sunday. I don't have time for it. I'm sorry. Um, I would like to get into it. But I, I, I really would just like to give you a couple things that I think will bring this home for you right here and, and right now. And here's the first one want you to see. Our faith in Jesus now stands on the foundation of their faith then. Our faith in Jesus now stands on the foundation of the Israelites' faith then. I want you to see the connection here. The, the, the faith that we have in Jesus is built on the scaffolding of what happened in the Old Testament we definitely can understand what it means that Jesus has forgiven our sins and loves us everlasting without an understanding of the Old Testament. I'm thankful that we can do that. I am for that in every single way. I think that's where we all begin, right? But I want to tell you, I think it's the beginning. Like the four spiritual laws, Romans Road, those things help us understand the gospel, but they're just part of the story. They're the tip of the iceberg. And when we begin to, to uncover what happened uh, in the greater story, like what we begin to see is this incredible arc of redemption that actually begins all the way back in Genesis, but has this heightened point in Exodus, and it comes to full fruition in Jesus Christ in the cross. And, and, and it's really uh, just the tip of the iceberg. My Old Testament professor Sandra Richter, um, she, she, she said it like this. If you really want, you can listen to your favorite album on a cheap one-speaker AM radio. <laughs> but why would you do that when you could listen to it on Dolby Surround Sound? And what she's saying is that when we begin to understand the Old Testament, when we don't neglect it and think it's some unwanted stepchild of faith, right? What it does is it, it enriches our understanding of what God did that was so big and, uh, and began so many years before us. And I just think that's worth saying. Uh, we, we have a faith that is built on promises that started 14, that an act that started 1,400 years ago in the Exodus. The God of Exodus is the God of Easter. Amen? Okay, here's the second one. The God of uh, Exodus and Easter is still writing your story of redemption. The God of Exodus and Easter is still writing your story of redemption 
You know, one of the things that I think is challenging when, when we hear a message like this is it's so informational. There's so many things that you've, you've learned, but they, it's hard to see exactly how they come down and affect me as I sit in this chair right here and right now, and I'm dealing with all the stuff that I'm dealing with as I come into to church on Sunday morning. You know, I got here this morning uh, right about ready for worship, and they are about to sing, and I sport, poured coffee all over my pants and the floor, right? You know, so how does this story relate to me? Um, that's, I, I have bigger things in mind, uh, but h- how, does, how does it deal with the things that we're, we're dealing with in our everyday life? Um, and and I, I just want to make an observation. You know, I think that uh, when we are troubled and concerned about things, I think all of them relate to our slavery to sin, and our slavery to death. I think if you think about the things that come up against us in this world, they're all related to some sort of slavery that we experience through sin, our own, or sin that is just here, and, and the death that is the consequence, the result, the wages of sin that, that Paul calls it in, in the book of Romans. And, and some of those things we can see direct relationships for, like I, uh, we, we cheat, we lie, we do something we shouldn't, we have a, a bad conversation, and we are in the thick of that because we know that we messed up and we're paying for those consequences. A lot of times, the, the sin that we live under slavery, uh, we, had, we had no part of. We were just born into it. Like I was born into a family that was broken and messed up and parents that didn't have it together or, or walked out on me. I, I would just simply uh, one day found out that I was stricken with a horrible disease, right? And I had no part of that. It just happened. That is the re- result of sin that cracked the foundation of our world and is enslaving all of humankind, right? And so we deal with this. We are people in bondage every day and, you know, one of the questions that we deal with day to day is, like, what can get me out of the slavery? What, what can help me? What can free me? And, and what I would encourage us to do, especially when we're sitting in things and we don't know how, how they're going to look, how they could look better, how the story of redemption is written in my life right here and right now, and we struggle to see it, you, you know, I would really encourage you all to, to, to think bigger, to, to look larger, to remember this massive story of redemption that we saw unpacked in a new way that God had done something 1,400 years earlier that was going to come to fruition that changed your life and changed the course of history and all the world that God isn't limited by the things that we are limited right here and right now. The God of Exodus who freed them then is the God of Easter who will free us forever and is the God who can come in right now and step in even beyond our ability to see things and free us right here and right now. Eugene Peterson says it like this, the God of Exodus and Easter will do things in you that neither you nor your friends would have supposed possible. He is not limited by anything you think you know about him. He is not boxed into the cramped dimensions of your ignorance or your despair. As Isaiah says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Behold, I am doing a new thing. And isn't that what the, 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 the exodus to Easter was all about? God had done this incredible thing in the Passover and freeing a nation of people from their slavery and God did it even better, newer, to free all of us from our slavery to sin and death. And what I hope can happen for you as you're able to step outside of what's happening in your life 
is that you're able to, to then see this bigger thing that's happening and say, if God get, did it then, he can do it for me now too. God is working out a plan that I may not be able to see, but is at work and going to happen. If God wove in the beginning thread of what would happen at Easter 1,400 years earlier than the Exodus, man, you better believe God can handle any of the smallest stuff that's going on in our lives. And, 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 and you know the, the one thing I want to just finish with, um, you know the, the, one of the most powerful ways that we're able to anchor that faith in our life? to say, I believe in the God of Exodus in Egypt, that's my story, it's through communion. It's through communion. Every week, it's one of the reasons I like doing it every week here at Redeemer, is that we get a chance to say, this is my story. I'm going to believe this. Whatever is happening now, there's a greater story that God's telling and that I'm going to trust, right? And so when you come forward, you're saying, uh, the blood of the lamb is painted over the doorposts of my life. Sin does not have dominion over me. I am no longer enslaved, and God is bigger than anything that I'm dealing with right here and right now. And you get a chance to do that every week by taking communion. It's an act of faith. It's something that roots you day by day, week by week, in the promises of God that are bigger than you, but by God's grace include you. And, uh, and, and it's, it's something not that we just do that doesn't turn into a ritual. This is something that if we let it, will do us. It will, it, it will make us bread and cup, body and blood, freedom and eternal life, right? The promise that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. <laughs> we thank you for um, how rich and full and incredible your word is and how rich and in full and incredible the story of redemption is and how amazing it is that, that by it freeing the Israelites, you began to tell the story of how you freed me and, and us and all of us from the things that, that overcame us and, and, and were having dominion in our lives, Lord. And I pray that day by day, week by week, as we follow you, that you would help us grow deeper roots to trust in your promises that are bigger than the right here and the right now, but, but lead us to the cross where you set us free. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.